From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that uncovers the lives and stories behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. If I can inspire people to really sort of think about trees, appreciate some of the bizarre antics they get up to, maybe it would be a step on the way to wanting to protect them. Walking through the Royal Botanic Gardens of Kew in London with his family was formative for polymath, writer and tree lover Jonathan Drury. With a career bridging engineering and broadcasting, he was part of the trailblazing team which created the very first iteration of BBC Online. He served the crest of the dot-com boom and he created a whole lot of very good BBC television programs. Yet the pull of the natural world held strong and his book, Around the World in 80 Trees, explores the unique relationship of human beings with the trees that surround us and the way that trees are tipping us off to the health of our societies and our planet. Jonathan Drury, welcome to It's a Long Story at the Sydney Opera House. It's very good to have you. Thank you. You're here talking about a book that you've just written called Around the World in 80 Trees. What was the first tree of your life? I think the first tree that I remember, it's a slightly sad story actually, uh, was a cedar of Lebanon near uh, Petersham in southwest London where I grew up. And we were out for a walk one week and passing this tree which had been struck by lightning. Uh, And it was a tree that we'd all really loved. And I remember uh, it was being sawn up, uh, you know, into logs. And I remember my father crying, and it was the first time I'd ever seen my father cry, and he had actually quite a difficult life. Um, And this was uh, a sign to me, in a way, of, uh, you know, here was my father, someone I'd always believed was in benign control of everything, and and I discovered at that moment that he wasn't. Um, And then I remember my mother saying to me, Uh, you know, Jonathan, there was a whole world in that tree. And it was only later that I I really sort of worked out what she meant by that. What did she mean? Well, I think she meant two things. One, um, you know, on on a simple level, actually, a tree is a whole ecosystem of things that depend on each other, Uh, all the little critters that sort of live in and around the tree. Uh, But also, I think it was symbolic uh, for her of of loss, actually, that the tree needed to be chopped down um, had that hadn't survived, and it was a symbol of my father's family, I think. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, my father came as the sole survivor of uh, an Eastern European Jewish family. He came to Britain just before the Second World War, um, you know, ha- having lost everyone. So uh, I, th- I think that's what uh, she was alluding to, though uh, obviously to a sort of five or six-year-old, she didn't want to spell that out at the time. You know, sometimes those early memories, um, they only come back to you later. And it's, I think it's only since I was really thinking about trees for the book uh, that I remembered that phase, that, that moment in my, in my life. And by then he had died anyway, so at a good old age. So what was your father's experience of the war? In, in common with many other Jewish people, you know, he, uh, he was very, very lucky to have survived and everyone in his family died. They were murdered. In camps? Yeah. Mm. How do you think that that influenced him as an, as an adult and as an immigrant to Britain? Well, I think that he, um, he had what is a, a sort of common immigrant experience, actually. He arrived with, with nothing. Um, he arrived with a little suitcase. How old was he? Um, I'd say he was probably 20 or so when he arrived. Um, and uh, he didn't speak any English at the time. He spoke a lot of other languages um, very, very fluently, but he didn't speak English. 
And he arrived in, in Glasgow, in Scotland, and, uh, you know, immediately set about learning the language, getting a job. Um, he had trained both in botany and engineering, and I think that Britain at the time probably didn't need too many botanists, uh, but they certainly needed engineers. And he worked at uh, Harland and Wolfe shipyards, gradually working his way up there. And uh, I, I saw a copy of his naturalisation, uh, not not the papers, but the report that the police had done on, on him, which is now available, um, you know, through our public records. And... Uh, uh, there was an exclamation mark in the margin that the police, the, who in, in, the policeman who had investigated him, said, um, "He's learnt the language and has made lots of friends." <laughs> and then there was another double exclamation mark to say, "And he's been promoted." So you know, he was obviously doing whatever he could to fit in, which is good. So what sort of man was he? I mean, obviously kind of sociable? Um, not especially. He was quite a shy guy, actually, um, uh, but uh, and, and quite formal. Uh, in early pictures I've got of myself uh, and, my, you know, my parents at, um, uh, at Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, for example, he's wearing a suit, you know. On a, <laughs> Just on for a, a Sunday afternoon on a, stroll. On, on, yeah, on an afternoon stroll, which is, um, you know, he's, he was always rather formal. Um but, uh, you know, slightly slapstick sense of humour, I would say. Um, uh, definitely, uh, you know, Eastern European sense of irony, which probably made him fit in in, in the UK pretty well. Um, and intensely curious about everything. Um, and that's something that my father and mother both had in common. A very, very, uh, you know, sort of huge curiosity about the world, um, about people and about things. What was your mother's story? How did they meet? Um, they met, uh, <laughs> of course, they met at a, um, a public lecture, probably a, an event not unlike Antidote, <laughs> and uh, in Glasgow just after the war and uh, hit it off pretty quickly. And uh, my mother's family uh, certainly took to, to my dad. What was the culture inside your family? You've spoken about an emphasis on learning and an emphasis on curiosity. Um, but you also didn't talk to each other all that much about sort of more emotional things, is that...? No, no, that's not true at all. Uh, you know, Jewish culture is slightly different from mainstream British culture and more like, um, I don't know, so, you know, sort of other parts of Europe where actually men can talk about emotions. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> How refreshing. Uh, yeah, and I don't know what it's like in Australia, but, you know, I was um, very pleased when I travelled uh, later in life to, to Chile uh, where I discovered that that was a very similar male culture there to, to mine, where you can actually talk about how you feel about things. So we were always talking about how we felt about things at, at home, and um, uh, but noisily. Uh, we were all talking over each other the whole time, even though we were a small family of just four of us. Um, it seemed like it was never quite relaxing. So you have one brother. Yeah. What's your relationship with him like? Yeah, good. Yeah, uh, and I'm hardly likely to say anything else on something that's going to be streamed on the internet. <laughs> that is true. Hi, David. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, he's seven years older than me, and that was incredibly fortunate for me. I don't know how he felt about it, but I, um, you know, having this little pipsqueak around. But you know, he used to take me to the museums and galleries and things a lot when he would have been about fourteen and I would have been about seven, and. You know, so I was going to the science museum with him and learning an incredible amount from someone who, you know, my brother's very curious and very sort of clever about uh, engineering and science. You speak of a childhood that was regularly punctuated by um, trips with your parents to the neighbouring Kew Gardens and they were sort of, you know, amateur expert guides. Yes, I think between them they were in, they covered every aspect of uh, botany in terms of uh, knowledge and love and appreciation of 
plants. And they, uh, I mean, we used to go for walks, family walks, sort of every Saturday or Sunday. And we would either go to Richmond Park, which was nearby, a big kind of um, uh, deciduous, mostly deciduous woodland park, um, or to Kew Gardens. And so I think every, probably at least every other week for all my life from the age of about four or even before I was in, when I was in a pram, all the way through, uh, you know, to the point where I could get out of it being a teenager. Uh, I think uh, every couple of weeks I probably ended up at Kew. And, uh, you know, there's that opportunity in those family walks for just discussing everything and nothing. And, uh, you know, the ability to just look around you and not, you know, just run around if you want to, uh, or to be curious about things. And so there are a whole lot of little stories that my uh, parents told me about individual plants, probably, you know, to try and jolly us along and keep us interested. (laughs) Um, uh, But, uh, and I didn't realise at the time uh, how much of that was sinking in. And it was only sort of later in life that I, I, you know, I look back on those times and I think, gosh, yeah, you know, I really did learn a lot from that. Is walking through parks and gardens still something that you regularly do, that you seek out? Yeah, yeah, I do seek out those places. And I I think also, uh, you know, you need a bit of light and shade, uh, you know, as when you're telling a story or or writing something or or, or making a film, you need light and shade. And I find that um, if I'm constantly in an urban setting and, uh, you know, plugged into my phone and all the rest of it, that I need a bit of the... um, uh, what I would think of as the levity of, of uh, just sort of wandering around amongst nature. Your first degree was in electronics with artificial intelligence, which seems extremely pioneering from for when you were doing it? Well, do you know, AI has been a a term for a long time and it's probably meant different things in different generations. So I I did that that course at Sussex University. Um, And I think that I really wanted to study engineering um, partly because my my father had been, you know, was an engineer. My brother was an engineer. Curiosity about and, and, and wanting to invent things and so on was very much part of the family. My poor mum. And... Uh, I think that I, um, you know, one of the main reasons I did that degree was because that's what my brother did. And I uh, certainly looked up to him and I also saw that, you know, how much fun he was having doing that kind of thing. So, um, uh, you know, and I did enjoy the degree. I think if I had, uh, if I'd have taken a year off beforehand and sort of learnt more about myself, I might have ended up doing something like anthropology or history of art or or something. But I, um, I'm quite glad I didn't take that year off and do those things because the engineering degree uh, helped me to get a job pretty quickly and uh, I, I joined the, the BBC and, uh, and that, that ended up being huge fun and giving me all sorts of opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. When I left university with my degree, uh, we had what was called the milk round. Um, you know, companies would come and visit universities to interview people and see whether you wanted to work with them and so on. And I had two job offers, one from British Telecom International doing satellite things um, and the other from the BBC. And the uh, British Telecom job was offering twice the salary of the BBC. And I, I sort of wasn't sure about this. We didn't come from a wealthy family at all. Um, and... Uh, I went to my dad and I said, well, what do you think? And he said to me, you know, go to where you'll learn most. And I thought, well, okay, well, that's 
good advice, I think, and I'll go to the BBC. Um, uh, and I'll, there's more things that I can learn there. And uh, it was only after he died, and I was looking back on on that conversation uh, at one point and reflecting on it, and I thought, there was a guy with a, quite a definite Eastern European accent. Did he say, go to where you'll learn more, or go to where you'll learn more? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like to think that so I'm pretty sure I know that he was suggesting the, the, the place I would broaden my mind uh, From what you've said about him that does sound likely um, So how did you progress through the BBC? Well started off in engineering um, uh, I was uh, you know, designing broadcast systems for a while that really wasn't for me um, I became an operational engineer doing um, sort of videotape editing and, and those things, learnt an awful lot about programme making in that time and realised that the place I really wanted to be was making programmes. Mm. Um, and I think that was because, you know, it was a place where I could satisfy my curiosity um, and also there'd be this continuous supply of grease paint, lights and girls. And uh, so that was clearly the, uh, the the route that I wanted to take. And... I I had an interest and in some you know qualification by then in in engineering and science, and I thought well the BBC makes programs about those things so maybe that's the place that I could go, and they had a system of internal attachments which allowed me to um, essentially get the experience before you've got the experience mm. you know you know sort of get out of that catch twenty uh, two. I joined a uh, television series called Tomorrow's World which was a weekly science magazine program where I learned an awful lot about um, both studio and, and film work and then ended up making programmes as a producer and then finally as an executive producer and a head of department and so on. The other major achievement um, of yours at the BBC was when you were head of commission for BBC Online and, and somebody who was part of the development of the first bbc.co.uk website. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I was um, fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And but the, also with a you know uniquely appropriate set of qualifications. Well, yes. I mean, I think that the um, you know what online needed at the time was people who understood engineering and understood computing and understood content and you know developing services for the audiences. And there was a small group of us who. Um, Interestingly, we all, just by chance, we, we didn't know this at the outset, we, we all had come into programme making from having had engineering or science degrees. Mm. Um, we all thought at the time, oh, well, that's an interesting coincidence. Uh, but when the uh, Director General, it was John Burt at the time, um, you know, sort of asked, why is it that this department of yours seems to be leading the way? We thought about it and thought, well, maybe that's the reason, actually. Um, and I, I'm a great believer in in having... Um, teams of people who, you know, have have the sort of diverse abilities that you need. And at the very, very start of something, it's useful to have people who have those diverse abilities within their own heads rather than having to have a whole team of people. When one sets out to build a website now, there's a whole team of people that are there to kind of advise on user experience and on sort of navigation and stuff. But I imagine that you were figuring all of that out from first principles. Yes, yeah, no, we're kind of inventing it as we as we went. I suppose we didn't have anything telling us this is going to be hard because we didn't know, <laughs> right. we didn't know one had done it yet. So uh, it was, you know, we we sort of found that some, some things were just terrible that we made and some things seemed to really um, 
you know, resonate with those few people who actually could get connected at the time. Right. Do you remember the world before the internet? (laughs) (laughs) I I remember the early internet, certainly. And, I mean, if you were to go back into you know, the, the, the time machine and, and, and look at those first pages. Would you be proud or would you be horrified? Um, <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't stand up to criticism now, but I think at the time, I, I think I, I, I was proud of what the team managed to do, actually, yeah. Why did you leave the BBC? I mentioned earlier that I uh, didn't come from a, a particularly wealthy family and at the height of the internet boom, anyone who had internet in their job title uh, was being offered crazy, crazy money elsewhere. This is in the late 90s? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, it was sort of 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. And uh, I, um, uh, an American e-business company called Scient, um, uh, they um, uh, got in touch with me and I, I, I said, I told them the truth, that I was perfectly happy in the BBC. I had this fantastic job running BBC Online um, and uh, huge resources to play with and a big corner office and all that kind of stuff. And I said, uh, you know, no, I th- thanks awfully, but, but no thanks. And they took that as, a, um, as the beginning of a negotiation. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the, the uh, amount they were offering, um, uh, you know, eventually sort of came to the point where I thought, well, this is quite interesting, I suppose, and would, also, would kind of alter my life in a way and also uh, be an interesting new challenge. And they weren't doing kind of uh, evil things. They were doing things with interesting companies. And so I, um, uh, I went there for a bit, and it turned out that that um, particular job that I went to was a fantastic risk because the internet sort of fell apart for a bit, you know, the internet boom, and that company went out of business. I did sort of okay out of it. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go back to the BBC, but I felt by then it was a bit like university. I absolutely loved it while it was there, but I didn't want to go back to it necessarily. And so... I set up a consultancy company. Um, then one of the companies, uh, one of the organisations I was consulting for was the UK government for the uh, Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Interesting how they put culture, media and sport mm. together, isn't I it? I can sort of see why, though. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not altogether unsympathetic with that, with that <laughs> grouping. You, you Australian culture, <laughs> culture and sport in the same pocket. I don't know. Um, and then... Um, uh, it, you know, I, I did some consulting for them and then ended up running this uh, project, uh, which was called Culture Online, which was a big uh, project to take culture and the arts to new audiences. Back in the early 90s, you met your wife, um, the writer and novelist Tracy Chevalier, who is very well known for as the author of Girl with a Pearl Earring. Um, How did the two of you negotiate your sort of competing careers throughout this period? Um, Yeah, I don't think our uh, careers were competing, really. Um, uh, Of course, when I met her, uh, she wasn't an author. Yes. Uh, She was a a sort of jobbing editor. I think her... Uh, she was working for um, uh, a reference book company and uh, I remember her pointing out once that you you see all these full stops on the page. Well, you know, someone has to make sure they're not bold when they should be italic, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, my God, that is anal, isn't it? And, um, uh, you know, so she was, uh, you know, earning uh, next to nothing. I had a steady job. And uh, because of that, um, the nature of that relationship at the time, it meant that, um, you know, effectively she could take time off and go and study to be a, an author. Uh, and then I realised that when we had a child, 
that actually if I stayed doing all the things at the BBC that I needed to do to sort of keep at that level, which is all the sort of evening networking and things and all, all that, that I probably wouldn't um, get to see much of my son and also put a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of extra effort on, onto Tracy. So I, um, uh, you know, that was, I think, a contributory factor to me leaving the BBC at the time. Mm. Um, and so we have managed to spell each other out, as they say in the US, you know, to, um, uh, to sort of uh, take the time to be able to, you know, look after things while the other one is particularly busy. Mm. But, um, it, you know, though I've written a book, that's a very r- recent thing. And uh, actually only, you know, our son is sort of sufficiently grown up, he can look after himself. So, uh, but, you know, so... You know, the the career of an author and the career that I've had have in a way sort of complementary and not really the sort of, certainly not competing and not the same, uh, not the same sort of thing. You've had a lot of flexibility, both of you, I suppose. Yeah, it's been pretty lucky that way. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, you've just written this book. Um, You know, your family made space for you to do that, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I sort of did it part time over about. nearly two years, I think, or a year and a half or two years. Uh, the research was absolutely brilliant fun because essentially, uh, you know, you've got an excuse to go to interesting places to see trees and to sit in fantastic libraries like the one at, at Kew um, and uh, pull out old documents and, <laughs> and sort of root around and find things. Then there's the difficult bit of actually having to write the bloody yeah. thing. And uh, I remember um, my uh, I rang up a friend of mine, Paul, in uh, Glasgow and I said I, do you know what I, I, I don't know I can do this you know I'm just sort of running out of time and uh, he said John no you will do it it might not be very good but you'll do it <laughs> and I, that is exactly what I needed to hear mm. and of course you know Tracy could have told me the same thing because she's a professional author and she does this for a living but um, uh I wouldn't have been able to uh, hear it from her so well, probably. Did Tracy help you much throughout the process? Um, it, well, she, uh, n- not with the content or the um, uh, or the way that it's written, but with the process. You know that um, I'd seen her go through the third quarter slump uh, so many times. And well, she when said, you decide that everything's terrible, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, and she she did remind me of the timetable every now and then. Said, you know what, you might actually want to get on and start writing that now. <laughs> <laughs> had it been, um, had the book been in gestation for longer than the actual research and writing period? How long had it been? Had it been in your mind? Um, do you know, the content of the book had been in my mind right since my parents took me to Kew as a child, which is 80 biographies of um, tree species around the world and their relationship between, you know, the relationship between the, the way the tree has evolved to be and uh, for its own purposes and, and the relationship with humans, this sort of entanglement between science and history and folklore and so on. But the idea of actually doing a book um, was very recent, and it was only because of uh, you know the publisher was interested, and I wrote a couple of entries, and they said, yeah, this is good, um, and they found a fantastic illustrator, Lucille Clerc, who's a French artist living in London, um, and that's how it was born. Uh, you tried to combine popular science with history and human stories together with cultural aspects such as religion and etymology. I mean, that is marvelously interdisciplinary. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose. Um, you know, people, uh, when I started writing it, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to do this special interdisciplinary thing. I'm going to just write things that are interesting. 
And the fact is that a lot of our education system is compartmentalised. And I think that all those conversations that I had with my parents when I was little, where we would just sort of talk about everything and nothing, the same sort of conversations that I tried to have and my wife tried to have with, with our son when we were walking him to school, where you bridge the disciplines and, you know, you, you know it's not one thing or another. There's, there's, there's interesting pieces of both and, and it's the juxtapositions that, that where the interest lies. You know, all the interesting things in life happen on the boundaries between things, mm. whether they're, you know, skin on skin or country against country or, you, you know, you always look at the edges to see what, what's really interesting. And, and so I think that that, I hope that that's what's sort of come out in, in the book, you know, so that a, a tree, for example, has uh, evolved with resin to engulf insects or to, um, uh, to poison them. Uh, but we use those resins for all sorts of interesting reasons, you know, whether, whether it's, um, uh, you know, cedarwood oil to, uh, for fragrances or, um, you know, the Jarrah from southwest Australia, which uh, people exported all the way to London to in the 19th century to uh, to pave the streets with. You know, mm. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, there are interesting um, combinations of history and science through almost every species. I mean, I know it's hard to ask for favourites, um, but of all of the, you know, delightful little stories and connections that you've that you've made or found through the book, is there one that just continually makes you go, ah? <laughs> for every species, I think I've tried to find something that has, you know, where there's a little aha moment, where whether you come from history or science or any of the other disciplines, you know, you might not know that thing. And for me, one of my favourite trees that makes me go, ah, um, uh, which happens not to be in the book, actually, is the quiver tree in, in Namibia. It's a relative of the aloe, uh, the aloe vera that uh, you use for cosmetics and so on. A uh, great big tall thing, 30 feet high, 10 metres, and it has this uh, amazing ability to survive where nothing else, not even grass, will grow in the desert. And this huge tree is flourishing. But the reason I love it is, it is, is partly that, but mainly because it's the national tree of Namibia, which means that anyone who sees it immediately smiles. So it's like driving a Morris Minor. <laughs> Everyone's smiling at you. And the second thing is that it's got this kind of interesting white powdery surface, which it has actually evolved to deflect and reflect ultraviolet light. Uh, so it doesn't get damaged, but you immediately want to touch it. And this combination of, of a tree that everyone smiles at and wants to touch, I think if I, if I had to be a tree, that's the tree that I'd like to be. Why is it called a quiver tree? Ah, because the local tribes uh, used it for storing arrows. Oh, so a quiver like a quiver quiver, not, yes. a, not a movement quiver. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also a very big environmental message that comes through in this book. Um, you write, and I'm quoting, the more we understand about these wonderful uses of trees, the more we'll want to protect them and use them in a sustainable way. And you draw a very, really short connection between, between trees, human interaction with trees, and kind of planetary destruction. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope that the, the book isn't sort of lecturing in any way and that the, um, 
aspects to do with environment and environmental protection are done in a light touch way because it's not it's not meant to be a harangue um but you know trees in common with other uh, all the other species actually uh, plants and animals are having to adapt to climate change uh, and also you know competition for space and i think that if people appreciate uh, the natural world they're more likely to protect it so i think you know if if i had a um, uh, an educational motive here i'm not sure i really did i just wanted it to be interesting and fun but the uh, if i had an educational motive it would be that if i can inspire people to really sort of think about trees um and uh, you know appreciate some of the bizarre antics they get up to then maybe it would it would be a step on the way to wanting to protect them as part of that throughout your book you're also looking at the way that we form relationships with trees in terms of overlaying our own myths and metaphors and stories and sort of cultural needs onto trees is that sort of key to the relationship you're you're talking about and how well i i think that there can be many kinds of appreciation of trees um you know one of the problems is that they don't up sticks and move very much uh, and human beings in common with other animals are programmed to look for movement you know there are good evolutionary reasons for looking for things that move so we tend to ignore or not even see things that aren't moving and if we don't see them we won't appreciate them so um you know it is true that uh, certain cultures will make stories around trees that uh, that eventually lead to their protection so uh, for example um in southern africa uh, there are trees called baobabs i think in in um in australia you, you call them boabs boabs we do and uh, the superstition is that the uh, your ancestors live in those trees and that the soul of your parents will be in the local baobab and if that's the case you're frankly less likely to chop it down yes <laughs> and uh, you know so there are some superstitions that are just sort of not very good for society to have um but that one is actually quite helpful and in a country that has got you know severe environmental challenges um the baobabs are somewhat protected because of that superstition and each country has its own interest quite interesting superstitions really you might for example when you go to um berlin the main street there uh is called unter den linden under the linden trees or lime trees and lime trees have this property of uh raining down from their leaves uh this sort of sugary substance which is actually excreted by aphids that live on the leaves and uh you know that rains down on the expensive mercedeses and bmws and audis and you think here's a nation that really kind of likes law and order and they've got the gruckiest cars <laughs> the gruckiest and most expensive cars and you know why do they put up with it and the reason is that if you ask any german where did you have your first kiss the answer is under the linden tree Mm. and you know it's got such a kind of folk memory i mean they'll say that whether they did or not it's like the bicycle sheds for brits right it's like it's like a sort of cliche in conversation yeah, yeah. and and that's why they put up with all the uh, the mess yeah. that is lovely we have all of these stories um that are around trees but we also have the reality that environments are being changed and shifted that animals and insects that trees need to pollinate and to reproduce are having their own environments threatened and therefore are scarcer and humans of course are moving into um you know habitats of trees and clearing and 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 logging and all of those kinds of things i mean when you look 
to the future for the trees. Are you hopeful or not? Well, um, I'm I'm generally optimistic about life, but I think that um, trees and the way we treat trees could be seen as a a bellwether for um, for the health of a society along with other indicators like, you know, do we educate girls, how do we treat minorities and so on. But if you think about um, what a society is likely to be like if they're looking after trees and nature in general, then they need to be wealthy enough and stable enough that they can think to the future um, and plan a long way ahead. You know, so uh, the Victorians, not the you know perfect society by any means, but they were thinking about what their trees would look like, the plane trees in London, looking f- and you know showing off their architecture of their squares 150 years later, 200 years later. Um, the the danger that we have at the moment is that uh, there is too much um, unregulated, unfettered consumption, and you know this becomes political. Uh, you know, in the United States, we've seen that, uh, you know, it's the Republicans who deny climate change, you know, because it's not a message they want to hear. Uh, I think the, there's an element of that in Australia. Um, fortunately, in the UK at the moment, it, the the climate change debate doesn't seem to have been politicised. So both uh, of the main parties, right and left, um, acknowledge climate change. I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of days about how writing gets used as activism. You've got a very strong message in your writing around being cautious, alarmed about climate change and about sort of ways that we can potentially address it. Did you set out to write this book as a work of activism or was that a separate thing? No, the, the thought of me being an activist is... Um uh, you know, I, uh, it, it's very surprising to me, and I—I I, uh, I mean, it's interesting. You've—you've you've read the book, and you—you—you you feel that way about it. I don't see it as being full of kind of um, uh, shouty environmental messages. Um, maybe that's not what you meant. That's not what I meant at all. Okay. Um, it wasn't at all haranguing to use to use your word, but but there's a very persistent gentle, persistent message. Oh, yes, I suppose that's true, you know, that um, I I want people to recognise that these uh, bizarre, intricate um, ecosystems, the things that depend on each other, um, the crazy things that trees get up to, um, you know, they're threatened by by changes in land use, by uh, climate change, by all sorts of human behaviours. And uh, you know, it's it's not just about protecting nature and trees, though, frankly, I think that, you know, we do share the planet with other things. Um, uh, but it's also in human uh, human beings' best interests to protect our environment because, you know, your kids and mine and their kids uh, will need to, to live on this earth. And, uh, you know, the way we're living now is, frankly and obviously, not sustainable. Well, Jonathan Drury, thank you very much for coming and talking to me today and being at the Opera House. Thank you for having me. Jonathan Drury visited Sydney Opera House for Antidote in 2018, and you can watch videos of his talks at the festival on our YouTube channel. Grab the link in our show notes. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. 
We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastering and additional editing by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan, research by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Fleur Mitchell and Nerida Ross. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time. Listener.